Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Candy Montgomery rummaged through the linen closet looking for a towel. She knew she needed to clean up the mess in the laundry room, but this was Betty's house, not hers. She didn't know where the cleaning supplies were, and Betty Gore definitely couldn't tell her now. Finally, she found a bath towel in the back of the closet. The dogs were still barking outside. She tried to tune them out and focus on the task at hand, clean up the floor. She just needed to clean up the floor. 30-year-old Candy hesitated before entering the utility room, careful not to look at the body. The washing machine hummed as she dropped her towel on the ground and started scrubbing. But it wasn't working. The harder she tried to lift the sticky red stains, the larger the pool seemed to become. She caught her breath, pulled herself to her feet, and tossed the towel to the side. As her heart rate began to settle, she glanced up at the clock. It was almost 11. She had promised to be at church by now to see her kids' Bible camp show. That was her new focus, Candy decided. Get to church. She didn't have time for the mess right now. She tried not to look down as she hopped over Betty's unmoving form to get to the door. Candy gathered her purse and glasses, carefully closing the front door behind her. She tried not to notice the thin trail of blood dripping from her toe, smearing her rubber flip-flops as she climbed into her station wagon and turned the key. She breathed a sigh of relief as the yelping dogs faded into the distance. The floor could be cleaned up later. Now, she just had to get to Bible camp. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. This is our second episode on Candy Montgomery, a Christian housewife whose extramarital affair led her to murder in 1980. Last week, we covered Candy's early life, her secret arrangement with Alan Gore, and how their relationship went sour. This week, we'll cover why Candy killed her lover's wife and how she was ultimately found not guilty of the crime. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Candy Montgomery had a lot to do on the morning of June 13, 1980. As she sped out of the parking lot of her church, she mentally rehearsed her list of errands, get gas for the car, pick up Father's Day cards, quickly visit Betty Gore, all in the next 90 minutes before she was expected back at the church for her kids' last day at Bible camp. She would stop by Betty's first, Betty's six-year-old daughter, Alyssa, was best friends with Candy's seven-year-old, Jenny, and had stayed at her house the night before. Alyssa had begged to stay over another night, but Candy needed to check with her mother and pick up a change of clothes. The visit with Betty shouldn't take longer than five minutes, Candy thought to herself. That was a relief. Nearly eight months ago, Candy had ended her affair with Betty's husband, Alan Gore. The tryst had lasted almost a year. Now that it was over, Candy realized it was just a silly mistake, but she still felt bad for Betty, the dutiful wife who knew nothing about her husband's secret. Candy would have avoided seeing Betty altogether were it not for their daughter's friendship. Candy turned off the two-lane highway into a spread-out subdivision. She immediately recognized the brick and white trim of 410 Dogwood Drive, Betty's house. Betty was startled by a knock at the door. She had just put her one-year-old down for a mid-morning nap and was looking forward to a few quiet minutes with the newspaper. It had already been a long day in the Gore household. Betty's husband, Alan, had left on a business trip that morning, and Betty hated when he traveled without her. It often felt like he was the only person who truly cared about her, and being apart for even a few days, especially with a fussy baby, was too much to bear. Saying goodbye this morning was particularly painful because Betty was worried she might be pregnant. Her period was two weeks late, and the drug she'd taken to induce her cycle hadn't started working yet. Betty had always been emotionally fragile in the days leading up to her period, but now she'd been flooded with premenstrual hormones for two entire weeks on top of the stress of a possible pregnancy. This made Alan's departure even harder to handle. Before we continue with Betty's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Betty had a history of falling into a deep depression in the days right before her period came. These changes in mood were so severe that it's possible she suffered from premenstrual dysphoric disorder. It's normal to feel some shifts in mood or behavior right before a period. Up to 75% of people who menstruate have experienced premenstrual syndrome in some form. 
But when the psychological symptoms of PMS become severe enough to interfere with someone's quality of life, they can be diagnosed with premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD. According to a clinical review in the British Medical Journal, those with PMDD experience intense anger, irritability, and sadness in the days leading up to their menstrual period. They may also feel impulsive, out of control, or aggressive during the premenstrual phase. If they have a pre-existing mood disorder, like depression, PMDD may intensify their symptoms. Betty clashed with her co-workers and the other women at church frequently, and it's possible that her premenstrual symptoms contributed to this behavior. An autopsy later showed that she was not pregnant and that her period was about to start. So as Betty went to answer the knock at the door, her premenstrual symptoms were at their most severe. Her anxiety around pregnancy and Alan's work trip made her even more emotionally fragile, and the last person she wanted to see was Candy Montgomery. And Candy started talking the moment the door opened. She skipped the greeting and immediately asked Betty if her daughter could sleep over that night. Betty said that was fine and invited Candy inside. No one knows the whole truth of what happened after Candy entered the Gore house. All the information available is based on Candy's recollection of the day. Candy's memories did match up with the evidence found at the scene, so it's clear that there is at least some element of truth to them. But without Betty's perspective, a crucial part of the story will always be missing. According to Candy, Betty asked if she wanted any coffee. Candy politely declined as she took a seat in the living room. Betty sat down next to her, staring blankly as Candy tried to engage her in small talk. Betty could only give clipped, one-word answers. When Candy stood up to get the clothes, Betty remained seated. She sat in silence for a few seconds. She was still thinking about being pregnant. Betty remembered how awful the last pregnancy was for her marriage. Alan had started acting distant and spending more and more time with Candy. Candy was popular at church, outgoing, thinner, and younger looking than Betty. Betty didn't think anything was happening between them, unless she glared at Candy and asked the question she'd been too afraid to consider until now. Candy, are you having an affair with Alan? Candy was stunned. She immediately said, no, of course not. She tried to back away, but Betty kept staring. Betty's eyes narrowed as she said, but you did, didn't you? Now Candy was cornered. She reluctantly said, yes, but it was a long time ago. It didn't mean anything now. Betty told her to wait and rose from her chair. Stiffly, she walked into the utility room out of Candy's sight. Candy's mind raced as she waited for Betty to return. Did Alan tell her? Did she figure it out on her own? She heard Betty's footsteps coming back toward the living room and braced herself. Would Betty scream at her, reprimand her for her sins, cry? She really didn't have time to watch Betty cry. Candy was just starting to slide out of her chair when Betty rounded the corner. It took Candy a moment to process that she was holding something, a three-foot-long axe. 
Coming up, the conflict between Candy and Betty reaches its gruesome end. Hey listeners, I want to take a quick moment to introduce you to the newest ParCast original on the block. It's called Incredible Feats, and it's a short weekday show hosted by comedian Dan Cummins. Every weekday, Dan shares a true account of physical strength, mental focus, or genuine bizarre behavior, going behind the scenes and into the achievements of world-class athletes like Dean Carnassus, who once ran for nearly 81 hours without stopping, and performance artists like Lucky Diamond Rich, who boasts layers of tattoos in the most unlikely places, and even everyday people thrown into extraordinary circumstances, like Juliana Kopka, who was forced to survive alone in a rainforest for 11 days. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. New episodes air daily, Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On the morning of June 13, 1980, Betty Gore confronted Candy Montgomery Was she having an affair with her husband, Alan? Candy admitted that they had slept together, but it was a long time ago. Betty returned to the living room, clutching the handle of an axe. Her knuckles went white as she looked straight at Candy, telling her that she couldn't have Alan. It sounded like an order. Betty reiterated, Candy could never see her husband again. 30-year-old Candy reassured her the affair was over. There was no reason to be upset. It seemed to be working. Betty's grip on the axe loosened, as if she didn't really know what to do with it. Desperate to escape, Candy tried to turn the conversation back toward Alyssa's clothes. Betty told Candy where to find them, then laid the axe against the wall. Candy stuffed the clothes into her purse and tried to fish out her keys. When she looked up, ready to say a curt goodbye, Betty's face was different. It wasn't full of rage anymore, just pain. She didn't look intimidating anymore, just small and sad. Candy suddenly felt guilty for hurting Betty like this. She reached out, awkwardly placing her hand on Betty's arm as she said, Oh, Betty, I am so sorry. Candy's patronizing tone broke something in Betty. She lunged toward Candy, pushing her back into the utility room. She picked up the axe again. The weapon felt awkward and heavy in her hands, but she savored how scared Candy looked as she cowered next to the washing machine. Betty screamed, You can't have him. I'm going to have a baby, and you can't have him this time. Candy begged for Betty to stop, saying, This is stupid. I don't want Alan. I don't want him. But her cries only fueled Betty's anger. It sounded so selfish. Candy didn't even want the man she'd stolen from Betty. She just chewed him up and spit him out. Betty raised the axe over her head, 
She was ready to kill her. Candy screamed and ducked as the axe fell out of Betty's hands and bounced on the floor, grazing Candy's foot on the way down. The sight of her own blood made something click. Now wasn't the time for pleading. She had to grab the axe and fight back. Candy snatched up the axe and held it in front of her chest like a shield. When Betty grabbed for it, Candy shoved her away, making her fall backward onto the linoleum. As Betty scrambled on all fours, Candy raised the blade and brought it down on the back of Betty's head. Candy heard a dull pop as the pressure inside Betty's skull released and blood began to pour down her neck. Candy dropped the axe and lunged for the door, but Betty blocked her way, taking up the axe once more. Candy begged her, let me go, but Betty was in a trance, in shock from blood loss, and simply whispered, I can't. She tried to raise the axe above her head again, but was too weak. Seeing her opening, Candy tackled Betty and bolted for the door, but the knob wouldn't turn and Betty was still coming for her. An eerie sense of calm came over Betty and she looked Candy straight in the eyes. Betty held her finger to her lips and let out a long, whispered, shh. This time, it was Candy who broke. The shushing triggered something deep within her, reverberating through her subconscious and igniting a primal, uncontrollable rage. Suddenly, Candy didn't need to get away from Betty. She needed to destroy her. Candy hoisted the axe over her head and brought it down with all her might, hitting Betty over and over in the head and arms. After a dozen agonizing chops, Betty's body finally twitched and fell. Her blood-covered head landed right between Candy's feet. But Candy couldn't stop hacking at Betty. She hit her at least 12 more times out of pure rage. She focused these last blows on Betty's face, trying to obliterate it. Candy kept swinging until her strength was gone, then dropped the axe and kicked it away. The right side of Betty's face was nearly unrecognizable, just a shapeless mass of blood and bone. Candy's breathing slowed down. She looked at her surroundings. There was blood everywhere. She felt unclean and nauseous. In a daze, Candy moved toward Betty's bathroom and turned on the shower. She didn't wait to take her clothes off before stepping in. But the moment she rinsed the blood off of her arms, she stepped out of the shower. There was a bigger mess to deal with. She found a towel and tried to clean up the utility room, but quickly gave up. The blood soaked into the fabric and only smeared more of the linoleum. The smell of violence mixed with fabric softener made her gag. She stood up, gathered her things, and didn't look back. Candy didn't know what time it was as she sped home. Her watch had stopped when she tried to use the shower, but she knew she was late. That Bible school puppet show started at 11. Betty's daughter, Alyssa, would be there. She shuddered at that thought. But that wasn't a problem, Candy insisted to herself, because she hadn't done anything to hurt Betty, right? If she just acted normal like nothing happened, it would all be fine. 
As Candy raced home to put her blood-stained clothes in the wash, she started to rehearse her alibi, just in case someone asked. She had talked to Betty for a few minutes, grabbed Alyssa's clothes, and then drove to Target. Her watch had broken in the Target parking lot, which was why she was late. If anything happened to Betty, it must have been some crazy person who broke in and killed her just a few minutes after Candy left. She didn't know anything about it. After cleaning up at home, Candy drove to the church. She arrived a few minutes after the puppet show ended and apologized to her son and daughter for losing track of time. None of her church friends commented on the blood at her hairline, but she knew they could see it. She wondered if the cut on her toe was bleeding through her canvas tennis shoes. Later that night, Alan Gore carefully dialed his home number from a hotel in St. Paul, Minnesota. No one picked up. After the phone rang 15 times, he gave up and started calling his neighbors, asking them to check the house. Before long, a small battalion of neighborhood men were ready to check the house at 410 Dogwood. As Alan waited for the neighbors to call back with news, there was only one person he wanted to talk to. Dialing the number almost felt like a reflex. He knew only one voice that could calm him down, the voice of his closest confidant and former lover, Candy Montgomery. Alan called Candy twice on the night of June 13, 1980. The first time, he asked Candy if she knew why Betty wasn't picking up the phone. Candy calmly lied, saying she had no idea, and hung up. She hoped that was the last she'd hear from him that night, but much to Candy's dismay, the phone rang again a few hours later. His voice shaking with grief, Alan told her that Betty was dead. The neighbors had found her mutilated body in the utility room. 30-year-old Candy managed to fake a gasp when Alan told her. She gently probed what he knew about the crime scene. Alan said that it looked like Betty had been shot in the head. It might have even been suicide. Alan told Candy not to say anything to Alyssa yet and to keep the radio and TV off. He wanted to tell his daughter himself. He hung up and Candy burst into tears. Across town, dozens of police officers and detectives were swarming into the Gore house. Every one of them was horrified by what they saw in the utility room. The scene was brutal, with blood everywhere and no effort made to cover up the crime. The hysterical neighbors who had called 911 thought Betty had been shot, but they clearly didn't see the three-foot-long axe sitting a few feet from Betty's head. After a quick look at the body, detectives confirmed that this was the murder weapon. One detective noticed a copy of the Dallas Morning News sitting on the kitchen counter. It was folded as if to emphasize a specific article, a review of Stanley Kubrick's new horror film, The Shining, a movie about a psychopathic axe murderer. Another officer pointed out that it was Friday the 13th and that the Gore's house was 13th from their corner. It looked like it had been 13 hours from the time Betty died until the body was discovered. Some officers wondered if it could be some kind of sick cult ritual. Either way, the perpetrator clearly didn't care about being caught. 
There was evidence everywhere. It looked like the killer had been calm enough to take a shower after they beat Betty to a pulp. Within hours, the investigators had numerous blood samples, a clump of hair from the bathroom, and a bloody thumbprint. They also found several bloody footprints, but were surprised at how small they were. A man couldn't have done this. It must have been a woman or a child. And it looked like they were wearing rubber flip-flops. The next morning, Candy lay in bed, imagining what kind of evidence police would uncover at the Gore house. She had only slept a few hours and spent most of the night staring at the ceiling and thinking about Alan's phone call. Candy had lived in Collin County long enough to know that the rumor mill would have already started churning, and she wondered what everyone in town was saying. She absentmindedly slipped on her sandals and went to the kitchen. The kids came barreling down the stairs. Candy said good morning to each of them, five-year-old Ian, seven-year-old Jenny, and Jenny's best friend, six-year-old Alyssa Gore. She tried to avoid Alyssa's gaze, not wanting to think about how much she resembled her mother. When the kids went outside to play, one of Candy's church friends called, asking if she had heard about Betty. Clearly, these kinds of conversations were happening all over the county, and for good reason. This was the most sensational crime the area had ever seen. If Candy really wanted to avoid being caught, it probably would have made sense to stay out of the conversation around Betty's death entirely. But her urge to talk about the crime could have come from an unconscious desire to confess. Austrian psychoanalyst Theodore Reich theorized that every criminal struggles with the urge to tell the truth and admit to their crime. When they consciously avoid the impulse to confess, their unconscious mind will try to force the confession out in other ways. This can make them blush or stutter and may also lead them to do things that increase their likelihood of getting caught, like spreading news of the crime or returning to the crime scene. It's likely that Candy joined in on gossiping to fit in with everyone else in the community, but it's also possible that she knew, deep down, that she would be caught soon, and part of her wanted to speed up that process. The phone rang off the hook all day, and Candy calmly listened to all the rumors about the murder. She heard about the bloody axe and footprints found at the scene. Some people knew that she had been the last person to see Betty and called to give their condolences. This made Candy nervous. They knew she was connected to it. Eventually, the calls became too much, and 30-year-old Candy went outside to do some yard work. The cut on her toe was still stinging. Candy looked down, realizing that she was still wearing the rubber sandals she'd worn to Betty's the day before. She remembered they had found footprints at the scene. Candy went back inside and sat down at the kitchen table with a pair of garden shears. She slipped the sandals off of her feet and dug the garden shears into them, working the blades back and forth until the shoes were unrecognizable. Then she gathered up the mangled bits of rubber and dropped them into a trash can outside. Alan Gore finally got back from his trip late in the afternoon of June 14th. He rushed through making funeral arrangements and then called Candy, asking her to bring Alyssa home. 
Candy and Pat drove slowly through Collin County with six-year-old Alyssa in the back seat. Neither of them could make eye contact with Alan when he opened the door and bent down to hug his daughter. They started to walk back toward the car, but Alan stopped them. He wanted Candy to be there when he told Alyssa her mother was dead. Candy sat on the couch and glanced toward the utility room. Luckily, the door was closed. She watched quietly, heart racing, as Alan pulled his daughter onto his lap and told her that her mom was never coming back. Alyssa started to cry, and before Candy knew it, she was crying too. She stood up and wrapped her arms around Alan and Alyssa, and the three of them wept together, just a few feet away from where she'd left Betty's body. By Monday, June 16th, the police were still running tests on the forensic evidence, but they considered Alan the prime suspect. The fact that he left town on the day his wife was murdered just seemed too convenient. But when he was brought in for questioning, his alibi was flawless. He'd been traveling on Friday, and his co-workers had been with him all day. The investigators asked him to describe every aspect of his marriage. They asked about how he and Betty met, her mental health history, and eventually, if they'd ever cheated on each other. Alan said no. His relationship with Candy didn't need to be brought into this. But later that night, Alan got scared. He knew the police suspected him and worried about what would happen if they found out he lied. At dawn the next morning, Alan called the police station and told them he did indeed have an affair with Candy Montgomery. Coming up, Candy admits to the killing and walks free. Now back to the story. 30-year-old Candy Montgomery expected to give a run-of-the-mill witness statement when she was called into the police station on June 18, 1980. But now that Allen had told the investigators about their affair, the case looked completely different. She was the top suspect. It fit together almost too perfectly. The small footprints, the husband out of town, his mistress visiting right before his wife was found dead. The axe seemed like overkill, sure, but that could be figured out later. For now, they interrogated Candy for hours, trying to get her to admit to the crime. Candy was compliant, allowing them to take fingerprints and hair samples, but remained resolute and stuck to her alibi. She saw Betty for only a few minutes, then left to pick up Father's Day cards. She said she was late to the Bible camp show because her watch was broken, but that didn't explain the faint cut on the side of her face, nor the bruises all over her legs. When a police officer directly accused her of killing Betty, she denied it. 30-year-old Candy was deeply shaken by the police interrogation and knew that the evidence was mounting against her. Panicking, she hired the only lawyer she knew, Don Crowder, a man from church. Don had never handled a crime case, much less a murder trial, and was stunned when Candy came to his door, asking for counsel. He invited her into his office, thinking he'd just need to calm her nerves after a standard police interview. Those could leave anyone rattled. 
He looked Candy in the eyes and told her that he didn't think she murdered Betty, but he had a hunch that she knew who did. Don reminded her that as her lawyer, she could not lie to him, even if she was lying to everyone else, and asked her who she was covering for. Was it Alan? Candy said no, Alan didn't kill Betty. Don asked her how she knew, and Candy started to choke up. She said, because I did it. 30-year-old Candy Montgomery's trial was scheduled for late October 1980, but by mid-July of that year, the public had already made up its mind that she was guilty. The news of Allen's affair had leaked to the press, and Candy's name had started to show up in the papers. Local journalists couldn't resist the story of a female axe murderer, especially one who seemed as unassuming as Candy. The police investigation was ongoing, but the media didn't hesitate to create a damning portrait. In their eyes, Candy was a literal homewrecker, a sex-crazed scarlet woman who didn't feel a shred of remorse for her brutal act. Candy didn't react well to this rush of media attention. Though she usually loved being in the spotlight, she became wooden whenever cameras were on. Her lack of emotion made it look like she didn't care about Betty's death, and this only made her look more suspicious. At one point, she smiled on the way into the county jail, trying to be polite, but this only added to her heartless image. She barricaded herself inside of a friend's house, trying to avoid the swarm of reporters. Candy only left to visit her lawyer, Don Crowder, who was desperately trying to craft a self-defense case. By July, Don was certain that there was more nuance to the story than what he saw in the Dallas Morning News. He knew that Betty had picked up the axe first. Candy was very honest about that. But he needed more information to convince the jury that she had acted in self-defense. And Candy wasn't much help. She cried hysterically whenever she was asked about what happened on June 13th and claimed to not remember any of it. Candy knew that she had killed Betty, but had blacked out the details of the murder completely. This kind of amnesia is somewhat common. Studies have shown that one in three convicted murderers cannot remember all or part of their crimes. Psychologists H.K. Snell and J.S. Hopwood conducted the first large-scale investigation of the connection between memory loss and homicide in 1933. They found that killers are more likely to forget their crimes when they were not premeditated. They also found that amnesia was more common among those who were extremely emotional when they killed their victim. The unplanned nature of Candy's crime and the extreme emotional state she was in when she killed Betty could have contributed to her memory loss. Regardless, Don had to find a way around Candy's amnesia and pry more details out of her. He enlisted a well-known psychiatrist and flew Candy out to Houston to meet with him. After a few hours of standard psychotherapy, the doctor tried a different tactic. He lowered his voice and started to hypnotize Candy. She went under quickly, and for the first time in months, she seemed to be completely relaxed. He gently instructed her to tell him what she was feeling when she thought about her conviction. Candy said that the main thing she felt was hatred. 
She hated Betty, and she hated what Betty had made her do. She hated the fact that this all could have been avoided if she chose anyone else's husband to have her affair with. The doctor nudged Candy's consciousness back to June 13th and asked if she felt hatred in the utility room that day. Candy said yes. She didn't want Betty to shove her again. She didn't want Alan. She wanted to get out and go back to her normal life. She wanted to scream at Betty to stop, to be reasonable and put down the weapon. The doctor watched as Candy shook and squirmed in her chair. She clearly was not comfortable with this level of emotion. He gently asked her to describe where her rage came from. What was the first time she got mad? What was the first time that she wanted to scream but couldn't? Candy immediately thought about the scar on her nose. She thought about the race she had lost to a neighborhood boy when she was four years old and the glass jar she threw in anger. Candy remembered the blood pouring out of her face in the emergency room, the immense fear she felt, and her mother's cold reaction. Still deep in a hypnotic trance, Candy told the doctor that her mother had shushed her that day, reminding her not to disturb the people in the waiting room. The doctor considered this. Had Betty shushed her that day in the utility room? Candy started to shake as she recalled Betty's otherworldly final gesture. The doctor tried to hide his excitement. It looked like he had found the emotional trigger that had sent Candy into a blind rage. He asked Candy if she wanted to scream. Candy said yes and started to wail, expressing all the fear and anger that she had kept down since she was four years old. After she had tired herself out, the doctor brought her out of the trance. He couldn't wait to tell her lawyer about what he found. Hypnosis is a controversial tool in criminal investigations. Hypnotists use sound and verbal cues to put their subject into a highly suggestible state. In this state, the hypnotized person cannot consciously control their actions. In theory, this makes them more likely to tell the truth about a crime or allow a repressed memory to come forward. Candy's psychiatrist was hoping to finally break through her amnesia under hypnosis, and he got what he wanted. But the extreme suggestibility of hypnotized patients also means that they're likely to create false memories to please their therapists. In June 1980, an article in Science Journal noted that the use of forensic hypnosis was on the rise. The authors found this worrisome because the hypnotic state does not guarantee any sort of truth. They pointed to a study by Martin T. Orne, which showed that people are able to willfully lie under hypnosis. The study also found that hypnotized people will not only fabricate memories, but convince themselves that those memories really happened. The authors of the 1980 article said that hypnosis could be used as a tool to unblock traumatic memories and get more information about a case, but they cautioned that this must be done carefully and that every fact found under hypnosis should be checked against real-life evidence before it is used in court. In Candy's case, it was difficult to verify her story because she was the only living witness. However, her sequence of events did match up with the evidence found at the crime scene. 
even small, seemingly inconsequential details like the precise location of the newspaper were correct, which made her story feel credible. Candy had six sessions with the psychiatrist in Houston, and some of them were observed by her legal team. Slowly, a clear picture of June 13th started to emerge. When the trial began in the fall of 1980, Dawn was confident that Candy could win the case. Hundreds of people descended on the courthouse, eager to get a glimpse of the 30-year-old axe-murdering housewife, and spectators crowded into the balcony that ringed the courtroom. Candy's attorney, Don Crowder, intended to take full advantage of the spotlight. Don insisted that Betty was the instigator and that Candy was only defending herself, at least in the first few minutes of the fight. He got Alan Gore to testify to Betty's erratic behavior around her period and her depressed mood on the morning of the murder. Don also brought up the newspaper. It seemed very possible that Betty picked up the weapon because she had read a review of The Shining that morning. When Candy admitted to having the affair with Alan, the idea of an axe was fresh in Betty's mind. In Betty's impulsive state, scaring Candy away with a weapon may have seemed like a perfect solution. Then, when Candy refused to apologize for the affair and the axe was already in the room, things got out of hand. But then came the question of the 41 blows to Betty's body. No one would hit someone that many times in self-defense. To answer this, Don brought in the psychiatrist. The doctor testified that Candy had learned to dissociate from her emotions at a very young age. Her mother had taught her to be overly concerned with what others thought of her, and Candy learned to keep up a front at all times. As she grew into an exemplary mother and church leader, she didn't want anyone to think that she was even capable of hatred or violence. In order to satisfy this ideal, impossible image, she buried every feeling of anger or dissatisfaction. A combination of factors brought all of these repressed emotions to the surface in Betty's utility room. Candy already associated Betty's piousness with her mother. When Betty happened to raise her finger to her lips to shush her, just like her mother did, it pushed Candy into a blind rage. The psychiatrist testified that Candy was not in control of her own body when she dealt the final blows. It was pure, pent-up emotion working through her. After days of testimony, the defense rested, and the decision was left up to the jury. As the jury door swung shut, the group of nine women and three men assumed that they were in for the long haul. Some asked for a change of clothes because they were worried that they would need to stay in the courthouse overnight. But to everyone's surprise, the verdict came quickly. After less than three hours, the jury agreed that Candy was not guilty. They accepted Don's self-defense argument and discussed Candy's dissociative state during the killing. The jury agreed that she couldn't be held fully responsible for her blind rage or the actions she took when she was blacked out. They ultimately voted unanimously that she was not guilty of murder or the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter. On October 29, 1980, 
30-year-old Candy Montgomery left the McKinney courthouse as a free woman, but only in the eyes of the law. Stunned onlookers shouted murderer at her as she was escorted into a car, and dozens of mailed death threats were waiting in her mailbox. Candy tried to ignore the negative attention and told the press that she wanted to get all this behind me and be normal again. Just eight days after the verdict, she and Pat moved away from Dallas. In the years since, they divorced. Pat continued his work as an engineer, and Candy became certified as a family counselor. Both have changed their names and refused to talk to the press. Alan Gore remarried and also moved away from Texas. He eventually lost custody of his daughters, Alyssa and Bethany Gore, who were adopted by their grandparents. The only thing left in Collin County is Betty Gore's house at 410 Dogwood Drive, which still stands. According to Dallas Morning News reporter Jeffrey Weiss, people still drive by it frequently, wondering what really happened in the utility room on Friday, June 13, 1980. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Candy Montgomery, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Evidence of Love, A True Story of Passion and Death in the Suburbs by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Kylie Harrington, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hey, Parcasters, don't forget to check out the brand new Spotify original from Parcast, Incredible Feats. Join host Dan Cummins as he explores true accounts of weird, wonderful, and all-out wild achievements. New episodes premiere daily Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.